you have your Bibles with you this morning, let me invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, it's always nice to bring your Bibles to be able to look at them and get familiar with where texts are. But if you don't have it, the passage is printed in your bulletin, uh, or you can follow along in those blue pew Bibles on page 230 this morning. Uh, last week, uh, we looked at chapters 4 through 6, a pretty big section of this uh, book of First Samuel. And if you missed it, I would encourage you to listen to it online. Uh, it's a little bit too late now, but today's sermon will make more sense in light of last week's sermon. Uh, if you can uh, catch up, I think that would be helpful to you. I will tell you that they are, in fact, three rather dark, difficult uh, chapters that were set before us last week. They were really lessons in how not to approach God, how not to be able to stand before a holy God when the Israelites found themselves in difficulty, the difficulty being the Philistines in particular. They treated God as an object, a thing to be handled and manipulated, particularly represented by the Ark of the Covenant. We're in a bad situation here. Let's go get the Ark. Uh, surely that will get us out of the predicament in which we find ourselves at the moment. But they kind of used God for their own, uh, we'll call it good fortune. They wanted things to go well in their lives. They wanted to experience the benefits of being God's people, and so they tried to use God on their own terms. It was, unsurprisingly, uh, unsuccessful uh, as an effort, and there was a name that was given at one point in the midst of those chapters, the name Ichabod which kind of serves to summarize those three chapters. Wither the glory, Ichabod, that's what it means. Where's the glory gone as the ark of the living God was taken and was captured and was brought into Philistia? Well, today is more hopeful than last week was. This chapter is kind of the counterpoint. So if that was how not to, Today's chapter is how to. How do you approach God? How do you try to stand in the presence of a holy God? How should we face oppression and trial and difficulties that come into our lives? How do you posture yourself before God? So instead of Ichabod being the name that would characterize this section. Instead, the name that characterizes it is Ebenezer. And as we'll see in the story itself, it's a far more hopeful name that governs this passage. One other thing to note before I read this section, uh, and that is, as I pointed out last week, that in chapters 4 through 6, Samuel uh, has gone completely off stage. We don't see from him we don't hear from him at all in those chapters. And now, as we come back into chapter 7, Samuel once again reappears, and he's instrumental. He's critical in the work that God will do and how the people will respond to God. So 
give your attention to this living word of the living God. I'm actually going to start in verse 2. I think uh, uh, it starts in 3 in your bulletins, but I'm going to begin at verse 2 for a little bit of context and read this portion. From the day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And when the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter into the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, to Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that once again we, your people, have the privilege of coming before your word and standing before it, and take, we ask, O oh Lord, this ancient text and would you minister it right now to our hearts. We pray that you would open us up, crack us open, so that we hear these things, so that we receive these things, so that they don't just bounce off to us and fall as seed along the path that is quickly devoured, but instead, bear it up to fruit in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Where do you turn? When the going gets tough in your life, where do you turn? 
when life seems to deal you one difficult hand after another, when it gives you one blow after another, when you can't get ahead, and when you can't seem to just catch a break in life, where do you turn? When Satan comes to vex your spirit, when troubled conscience sighs for some kind of rest, when sorely by your sins oppressed, when by life depressed, where do you turn? Some people just abandon God and abandon the church at that point. At some point, whether through a crisis or whether just through a series of blows, they throw in the towel. I was talking with somebody this week, a friend, and his comment was, you know what, years ago, I gave up on God, I gave up on the church because so many bad things had happened in my family that I just gave up, just abandoned it and walked away. Some people busy themselves with things in life in an effort to distract from the reality, from the pain of the things that they have experienced. Some people in a variety of forms self-medicate and try to ease the pain of a difficult world, of a sad life. Other people, when they have received blow after blow, become bitter, and you can see it in them. You talk to them for just a few sentences, and you'll crack open the bitterness. You'll see it start to pour out of them in all sorts of small little comments and snide things that are said along the way. And some people, kind of like Israel in the last section that we look at, looked at, try to work out a deal with God. Try to figure out that some, there has to be some way that they can use God for their benefit. God, I would like to use you to deal with, for Israel, the Philistines. God, I'd like to use you because I'd like to find help in some form, a new job in some form, a better marriage in some form, a, a, a spouse. I'd like you to help me. And so some efforts are made at making a deal with God. Where do you turn? Where will you turn in the years to come because the blows won't stop coming? Israel felt the weight of their failure. That's why I read that verse too for us. For years, lamentation abounded in Israel because of the decisions that were made for some 20 years, according to verse 2, when once again, Philistines appear on the horizon. There they are again. What will they do at this point? Where will they turn? 
Remember the last time. Where did they turn? Go get the ark. Go get the ark. That, that was the solution. That was the turning last time. Where will they turn this time? And in the midst of that, we hear this time the prophetic voice of Samuel speaking into the situation. The prophetic word of God comes into this situation, comes into it in a way that we can't exactly figure out how, we can't exactly understand the dynamics of this situation here, or how Samuel starts speaking. But perhaps Samuel is at one of these places, and he sees a group of the Israelites coming towards him. Are you turning? Are you turning? Are you returning to the Lord? Because if you are, if you are returning to the Lord, then, then Israel, there's hope. The events of chapter 7, as they're recorded for us here in this text, are a picture of how to return to the Lord. Of how to get back home from wherever we've been, this shows us the way. It shows us the path of renewal, the necessity of help, and then the hope that is found in remembrance. We begin then, as we look at this text, with the path of renewal. Renewal, I think you will agree with me, renewal is a great word. Ongoing renewal is a sweet word. Renewal in general is a word that just conjures up all sorts of hope for us. Now, the word, the word renewal is not used in our text here today. But make no mistake, this passage is about renewal. It is a passage that is out with the old and in with the new. That's the idea that is here. But, and here's just... A little kicker, a little twist on that idea. Out with the old, in with the new. This is a passage about renew. But the new is something old. The new for Israel is something old. And that's because for so many years now they've been steeped in a false worship. In a false way of trying to handle God. In an absorption of their culture and the values of the culture that are all around them. And the something new for them is something old, something ancient. It is an ancient path that God has laid out in his word. Israel is coming home. If you think of this story like the story of the prodigal son, I think it will help you and us to understand what's going on here. The prodigal son is obviously the story of one person returning home. This is a nation. This is the people of God returning back to the father whom they had left. And like the prodigal son, or for all of us, the primary need, and this as much as anything else is what I want us to hear from the passage today, the primary need here is not for a change of circumstances. They cannot be going to Samuel simply to get a better battle plan for how to deal with Philistines. 
1 Samuel includes many changes, many administrative or structural or political changes that are going to take place in the life of Israel. We have seen several of them already. The establishment of a prophetic office, someone who declares the word of God unto the people of God. Next chapter, we'll see the establishment of a king. And if we continue on in the story, the establishment of Jerusalem as a capital city and the establishment of a temple within Jerusalem. There's going to be lots of administrative structural changes that take place in 1 Samuel, but the primary thing that they need is a change of heart. They need a different heart. Renewal needs a change of heart. And that's why Samuel says right off the bat, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. If it's not just some circumstantial thing that you're doing right now, but if you're coming back to the Lord with all your heart, then there is hope. With all your heart is the heart of the book of First. Samuel. It is the heart of the book of 1 Samuel. This idea of turning with the heart is the heart, frankly, of all of Scripture. I want to read you a passage from Joel. If you want to, you can turn with me. It's in Joel chapter 2. If not, I'll just read it for you and you can look at it at some point later. But I want you to hear what it sounds like when a prophet instructs the people in exactly the process that we see in this passage right here. Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. You hear it? You hear it? It was customary, right, to, to tear the clothing, to put ash on your head. Fair enough. But what the Lord wants is a, a rent heart. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows? whether he will turn, not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. That's what it sounds like when a prophet is speaking into and calling the people to this. 1 Samuel 7 is what it looks like. I'm calling you says the Lord, and says Samuel, and says the prophets, to turn to me with all of your hearts. Now let's identify from the text then, what are the particular elements of this renewal? What goes along with this? Um, if, if you're looking at this text, if you're looking for renewal, start here. You ready? If you, if you say, you know what, I'd like to turn, I'd like to have renewal in my life, well the place to start is right in this text. And it's in verse 6 of this text. 
It is a very simple statement, and the simple statement is this. We have sinned against the Lord. That's the bottom line. This is the fundamental acknowledgement and concurrence with God. It's honesty with yourself, and it's honesty with the people who are around you. Now, all of us have heard this, it's so trite, a million times from 12-step groups or movies that parody 12-step groups or just echo the words in 12-step groups. But the first step is what? Is admitting you have a problem, right? The first step is admitting you have a problem. Maybe we could just modify that a little bit and say, and identifying the problem correctly. In chapter 4, Israel lost to the Philistines. And they were confused. How did we lose to the Philistines? How did that take place? Answer, no ark. Answer here is different, wholly different. It's not a circumstantial problem. It's a heart problem. We have sinned against the Lord. So we begin, or Israel begins, with this recognition. But what next? What do you do once you recognize sin? It's important to recognize sin in our lives, but what do you do next? And Samuel gives them three very concrete, very specific requirements. They're in uh, verse 3, and I'd like you to look at them with me just so that you see this right from the Word of God. So if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, step one, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the idols in your life. Put them away. Destroy them. Get rid of them. If you want to put this in the language of Jesus, as long as we understand from Jesus the hyperbole that is included in this statement, do not take it literally except for the seriousness with which it is meant against sin. What is being said here is exactly what Jesus says when he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Get rid of the things in your life that for you are the triggers to sin. Put away the idols. Put away the asteroids is what's being commanded of the people of God. Take a concrete step. Now, it's impossible for me to identify for all of you what a concrete step might be without talking about a particular sin. But just since I mentioned the 12-step thing, let's use, again, another caricature almost of something like this. If you struggle with alcohol, if you use it inappropriately in your life, pour it down the drain. That's the idea that's before us right here. Just pour it down the drain. Do something specific, concrete, visible to show that you mean business with this, that you mean to get rid of these idols in your life. We, we hear this in finance seminars, right? If you're struggling with debt, cut up the credit cards. 
make a big deal of it and cut up the credit cards. Do something concrete. And then Samuel says the next phrase that comes after that. Get rid of them and direct your heart to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider his mercy, his grace, his love. Consider the sacrifice that he made for you. Consider the holiness of his life. Direct your heart to the Lord. One, destroy, remove. Two, direct your heart to the Lord. And third step in this passage, and serve him only. See, you can't just clear out space. You can't just get an idol out of your closet and think that your closet will stay clean. It will not. Closets collect. Hearts collect. You can't clear a patch of ground and just keep it unplanted, just full of dirt. Because ground collects. It collects seeds and it collects weeds and stuff will grow in that space. You can't leave a space. You've got to fill it with something that is good. And so Samuel directs the people, serve the Lord. You were doing this, put that away, direct your heart here, and now serve the Lord. Fill the space with God. And as Samuel is doing this, he's picking up old language. This is language right out of Deuteronomy. These are the commands right out of Deuteronomy that were not directly, you just need to go a couple more chapters, but the idea of the Ten Commandments is embedded right here. And you'll see this as I take one more step with it. This is the language of Deuteronomy that Samuel picks up in this passage that Jesus picks up in the temptation by Satan in the wilderness. When Satan offers Jesus what he does if Jesus will just, just fall down and worship him, then the response that Jesus gives is this response. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That is an ancient path. You recognize, you admit your sin, you hear those requirements, and then there's one more step of renewal here that's embedded in this passage. We might, uh, we, we might slip over it unintentionally, and that is resolve. Resolve. Engaging our wills is not contrary to the working of God's grace in our lives. Instead, it is, in fact, evidence of the working of God's grace, the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need for ourselves resolve and the demonstration of that resolve. And that's what's going on in this passage where you get into, in verse 6, the fasting and the pouring out of the water onto the ground. It is demonstrated resolve. That's what the fasting is in this place. It's not a way and let's be clear with this, it's not a way by which either we, if we were to practice fasting, or Israel earns points with God, earns favor with God, earns God's magical touch on their lives and 
gets better circumstances. Instead, instead, is a demonstration of seriousness. It's a testimony that, Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy of all of my life. And in you alone is their hope. So this is the path of renewal. These are the primary elements of renewal that are laid out in this passage for us. But if we're going to turn, if we are going to return to the Lord wherever we have been, then this passage makes something else abundantly clear. And that is, you need help. You need help to turn. You need help to return to the Lord. We should not think of turning to the Lord or of returning to the Lord as simply some individual personal project that we do to reignite our hearts and our relationship with the Lord. This is corporate worship that's going on in this passage here. It's God's people gathered together who are turning in this passage, and in particular, Samuel is integral to this process of return. He assumes the roles that we've already seen him in thus far in the book, but he assumes the role of prophet, declaring the word of God to the people, calling the people to come back to repentance, of judge, Samuel is the last of the judges, as he works among the people and as he works for their deliverance and their salvation, he functions as the judges of old function. And of course, Samuel in this chapter as well shows us his priestly work. He shows us his priestly work in the offering that he gives in the middle of the passage, uh, chap, uh, verse 9, pardon me. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And that's typically what we think of when we think of priestly work while giving an offering. But the priestly work that Samuel does in this passage is not simply offering this lamb as a burnt offering. Actually, the more significant thing that he does is he prays for the people. He intercedes for the people. That's what he does as the priests of the people. Verse 5, Samuel gathers them together and says, I will pray to the Lord for you. Verse 8, the people say to Samuel, do not cease to cry out on our behalf. Verse 9, Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. Now let's apply this to ourselves for a moment. If you're looking to turn, if you're looking for a sharp turn to turn your life around, or if you're looking to turn or return home unto the Lord, you need help. You need help. You cannot do it on your own. If you're looking for a fresh start, then look around you. God has gathered up this body right here, 
the communion of saints. We are linked to one another to provide help to one another. If you want to turn, then you get some people to help you. Some people who will join together with you and confess with you. Who will say with you, we've sinned against the Lord. And then who will speak to you and with you about the word of God and the work of the word of God in their lives? And who will pray? Who will pray with you? Who will pray for you? Find some people in here who will fast with you as we seek to return to the Lord. But more foundationally than that, more foundationally, not, not instead of, not in place of, but more foundationally than the people who are sitting around you right now, remember that we have a helper better than Samuel. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Our help is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, better than Samuel, is our prophet and priest and king who offers himself as a sacrifice. And he, like Samuel, prayed for us and prays for us. Now, it's a good thing if we're praying for one another. But how sweet is the knowledge that we find in the book of Hebrews that he, that is to say Jesus, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. I mean, I'm glad when you pray for me. I am. I'm more glad that Jesus is praying for me, and so should you be. The high priest is interceding for you. The helper is interceding for you. And as if that weren't enough, Jesus says, when I go, and when I go to the place from which I will be your helper, in which I will be your helper, I will do what? I will send you another helper. I will send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be amongst you as your helper. And the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus sends, just to, to put this, because there's a really good visual comparison here, the Holy Spirit is not a circuit rider, as Samuel was here. Right? I mean, this is a terrific picture of Samuel's care, where he's going around to the various towns. You know, he lives here, but he keeps going out, you know, once a year or so to these towns that are around. So maybe if you were in Israel, you saw Samuel every once in a while. The Holy Spirit, says Jesus, I, I will give you a helper who will dwell within you. How sweet is that? How tremendous is that? You are not on your own. You are not on your own to turn, to return, to get home. You are not on your own in that process. You have an omnipotent, ever-present helper. So let's see then. How does this work out in 1 Samuel? Well, we have no promise that the Lord's help means that we will never have any problems or will always be delivered from difficult circumstances in this life. In fact, and this is another thing worth listening to closely in the sermon, in fact, returning to the Lord 
actually involves loosening our grip on circumstantial benefit. Let me say it again. Returning to the Lord involves loosening our grip on any circumstantial benefit we may gain from that return. I've already read for us from Joel chapter 2, but now let me highlight one of the verses in there. Verse 14, Joel chapter 2, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Let me, let me give a couple of other examples of this, and it'll, you'll get the story of it more. Think about Jonah. Jonah's message to the Ninevites is a message of destruction and judgment from God, right? There's no hope embedded in it, except how the Ninevites perceive it. They say, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When the prodigal son makes the decision to go back home, his decision is not based on the idea that he will be received back home as a son, that he'll still have an inheritance, he'll still have a place. He actually loosens his grip on that old position, on those old possessions, and says, I'll go back to my father's house and be like one of the hired servants. I'll just go as a servant. Turning to the Lord, returning to the Lord, involves loosening the grip on the things that we think are the main problems, the main issues that exist in our lives. Returning to the Lord is the hope and victory, not the means to it. You see it? It is the victory. It is the eternal victory. It is the eternal blessing that you get to return to the Lord and say, Lord, as your will be. Maybe. Maybe the circumstances will get better. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I've got to get back to the Lord. That's the attitude of faith. That's the acknowledgement of a real turn back to God. But in 1 Samuel chapter 7, as is often the case, as was the case in Nineveh, as a matter of fact, God does here. God does bless. Verse 10, but the Lord thundered a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, and Israel was delivered. There is a victory that is here. It is, just to point it out, a fulfillment of the words of Hannah. Chapter 2, verse 10, the end of her song, her prayer. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Now, the Israelites had tried to conjure up a little thunder. Hey, when, when they got the ark, when they brought the ark in, chapter 4, verse 5, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, 
all Israel gave a mighty shout. That shout didn't deliver. It scared the Philistines a little bit. But it got their back up, got their strength up, and they came in and whooped them. The shout of people doesn't deliver. The thunder of God does. And the Israelites joined in and pursued the Philistines after the Lord had delivered them. The celebration of the victory over Philistia, but more importantly, the victory of repentance and the return. To celebrate all of that, Samuel sets up the stone. The stone of help. The Ebenezer. Till now, the Lord has helped us. He's helped us. And remember it. Look at this stone and remember that the Lord has helped us. Christ is our help. Christian hope is fostered by deliberate and dedicated remembrance. For families and for churches, that means we are under a delightful obligation. An obligation that we are discharging at this very moment. This is an act of rehearsing and remembering. God's saying to Christ the King Church, remember. Remember how I deliver my people. See the word of God, hear the word of God, and remember. It's a delightful obligation to family and churches to tell the stories of God's faithfulness in the church. Now, we did that formally, what, a couple of months ago, when we talked about the stories of 20 years of the history of this church. Let me give you one recent example. You know, we, we've, we've now secured this loan and borrowed this money, and I can't tell you how many times I have heard the story, Rex, not that you're repeating yourself, um, but how many times I have heard the story from Rex about a time when 10th had an opportunity to buy a building, the funds were not immediately available, but the purchase had to be made, a loan was secured, the building was purchased, and the loan was retired in a short amount of time. That's a story of God's faithfulness. It's an Ebenezer that Rex, for many of us, pushed up and said, listen, we, we're not manipulating God. We're not assuming that God always works in the same way, but remember what God has done in the past. And it's a delightful obligation then to tell the stories in our homes about our own lives and about our own families and about how the Lord has provided for us over all the years. We are not called to raise up a stone sacramentally in our backyards or in the churchyard over here. But, brothers and sisters, we are given the exact same gift as was given to Israel. Theirs was a stone, ours is a meal. So that month by month, Jesus says to us, do this in remembrance of me. Our hope is fostered 
by remembrance as the people of God, of the mighty acts of God most clearly seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I don't know where you are right now, but turn. Or return to the Lord with all of your heart. And what you will find is a father waiting, running with open arms to embrace, to kiss you, to clothe you, to put a ring on your finger, to put shoes on your feet, and to kill the fatted calf for you. Return to the Lord with all your heart. Lord, we pray that each of us would take this and allow it to impact us where it needs to. Grant us the grace of ongoing, sincere, honest, heartfelt repentance turning towards you, returning home. We ask this in your name. Amen.